Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Uh, I'm very excited about my guest today, who most of you who are listening or watching to this know uh, is Adam Liptak, the Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times. Adam is a graduate of Yale College and Yale Law School. He then went into private practice, uh, both in a private law firm and then, I think, in the general counsel's office of The, Yale, of the New York Times, yes. I believe. Uh, and then, of course, in 2008, uh, he had some very big shoes to fill, replacing Linda Greenhouse as the Supreme Court reporter for The Times. As much as we love Linda, I think we can all agree Adam has filled those shoes wonderfully. Um, Adam was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in 2009, I believe. Um, and if you, cover, if, you, if you want to learn about the Supreme Court, there is no one better in the United States to learn it from than Adam Liptak. Thank you, Adam, for being here. Well, that's very nice of you to say, Eric, and it's great to be with you. And um, you, you were down here a few years ago for a conference on invisible justices, and then you were supposed to come back for our conference on Justice Kennedy, but the Kavanaugh hearings went a little long. Can we agree on that? <laughs> yeah, we had a second go around. I, rem- I remember that. Yeah. Most people do. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's start with this. I would think there are a lot of challenges to covering the Supreme Court that other journalists don't have when they cover other politicians. What are some of the biggest challenges? Well, it's a funny thing, because on the one hand, there are challenges, because in a sense, the court is quite secretive. It does a lot of its work in private. On the other hand, the court will say, and I think there's truth in this, that unlike the other branches, they are for the most part uh, public in their reasoning. So that uh, in a major decision, uh, in an argued case on the merits, they will give birth to 100 pages of reasoning. So I remember once having a conversation with my editors that we needed to find out what really happened in Citizens United. This is like a couple <laughs> hours after the decision came out. So, well, for starters, we can take them at their word. To a large extent, they're going to say precisely what they think in their opinions. So they are unlike uh, the other branches in that regard. But your basic point is right, that a Pentagon reporter or a White House reporter is basically spending most of their time not explaining the public actions of those institutions, but trying to find out secret stuff. Whereas my job is largely translating legal materials to, uh, to an educated readership, but nonetheless one that doesn't have the patience or the uh, background to make sense of the legal jargon that uh, emanates from the court. I might push back a little bit later on how transparent the court's written opinions actually are. But before we get there, um, so, uh, you know, most of the justices do from time to time go around to law schools, give interviews. Of course, their answers are usually very perfunctory and all that. But they do they do do that. Just at Georgia State alone, we've had Ginsburg, Kennedy, Scalia, O'Connor twice and so on and so forth. Um, to the best that I can tell, the Supreme Court, you and, and, and the USA Today Supreme Court reporter and the Wall Street Journal, you don't sit down with these justices and do interviews with them. Would you want to do that? Well, so let me push back a little bit. I have interviewed uh, Ginsburg on the record twice, Breyer, Sotomayor, Stevens, okay. uh, typically when they have a book to peddle. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, the there have been those occasions, and they're not wholly inaccessible in other regards either. So it's it's not a, 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 a completely binary black and white thing. Um, but sure, I'd like to talk to them more. Yeah. They, know, they know where to find me. <laughs> um, a few months ago, there was some stuff going on in social media about their law clerks and how, you know, some 98% or pick a number never say anything about their justice ever that means anything for the rest of their lives. There are exceptions every now and then. Uh, Lazarus wrote a book, of course, um, about justice, about, about the Casey opinion. But overall, law clerks don't talk ever, not even unless a justice dies and they're doing a you know, memorial. And that's almost always positive. Is that a good thing, that we never hear negative things from their law clerks? So, again, I'm, I'm going to quarrel with the premise a little bit. Uh, a current law clerk never talks. Right. And a recent law clerk seldom talks. A law clerk for Justice Thurgood Marshall will talk to you all day. So there's an inverse relationship between, um, you know, how recently the law clerk served and how much they're willing to talk. Right. Uh, as And so I don't 
I don't find it as and, and and people you know people publish books about uh, reminiscences of law clerks. I do take your second point that uh, they almost always only say positive things about <laughs> the justices for whom they served, and that's probably for the most part authentic. It's an important relationship with an important mentor, and you're going to feel good about it usually. Uh, and also, but it's probably a professional calculation also. What good is it is going to come to you from criticizing a Supreme right. Court justice? One last question about this um, that may get me in a lot of trouble. I don't think it'll get you in trouble, but if it does, don't answer it. So I blog with Mike Dorf, who's also a good friend of mine. And um, I love Mike, and I think he's great. And Mike clerked for Justice Kennedy during the Lee versus Weissman and Casey term of 1992. And if you go back in time and look at articles around that time, you will see people talking about the greenhouse effect about Justice Kennedy. We discussed that when she was here. But there are also rumors that Mike was Larry. Well, he, he was Larry Tribe's GRA. And there were rumors that he and Tribe kind of got Kennedy to change his mind from Webster to Casey. Um, I don't want Justice Kennedy to pass away. I want him to live 20 more years. But in the unlikely event that he does, in the sad event that he does pass away, would there anything, would there be anything wrong with Mike talking about those rumors, either confirming them, putting them to rest, saying it didn't happen that way, something he'll never do and wouldn't do? But I'm not sure there's anything wrong in that. Is there something wrong with that? Um, so I, I guess you answered on two levels. One is what understanding did he have with Justice Kennedy sure. about chamber secrecy? And, you know, if you make a deal with someone uh, that you're going to keep that secret even after that someone's death, you should uh, keep that deal. But in general, I think there's a fetishization of secrecy in chambers. Um, and it's not really clear what it's based on. I mean, what, what recent events, it's based on what in other contexts is called the deliberative process privilege that you want people to be able to speak candidly. Sure. And if they know that what they said in chambers while they're cogitating on something will be disclosed tomorrow, they're less likely to be candid. And I understand that completely. That diminishes with time, probably disappears at some point in time. And so unless uh, Mike had a special private understanding with Justice Kennedy, I don't know what should stop him from okay. telling people about their government in action. Um, Steve Vermeil is a used to teach at Georgia State, is a friend of mine. He's now a law professor at American. Uh, he co-wrote a biography on Justice Blackman. Uh, and, and because he's a friend, uh, I had some access to Brennan's file. And there, Brennan's papers. And there's gold in there for those of us who teach. For example, Brennan wrote a lot of important federal courts opinions in addition to his con law opinions. And, and a couple of them are mysterious as to why Brennan would have gone the way he did. Right. And these papers... Tell us a lot. As an historical matter, I think they're really important. Do you have any thoughts about how we're not going to see, you know, Justice O'Connor's papers until 50 years after the, Justice Thomas resigns and all yeah. that stuff? I mean, I mean, Steve's in an interesting position because I think he's actually the executor of these papers yeah. in addition to having had privileged yeah. access to them, even while Brennan was alive yes. and he would go up to Brennan's chambers early in the morning and yeah. rifle through his files. That's... That's quite an opportunity. Um, should justices' papers be made public sooner? What am I going to say? I'm a journalist. Of course, of course, <laughs> I think so. Um, and I and I also wonder why we treat them as justices' private property. They they were created on the government's dime. Um, so it, and I don't think any particular harm was done by the quite prompt release of Thurgood Marshall's papers. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I'm in favor of openness. I, Dean Irwin Chemerinsky, I, I was talking about this area generally uh, at a speech I saw him give, and he, he made a statement that stayed with me, uh, that knowledge is better than ignorance. <laughs> Irwin is very good at saying statements that stay with people for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, there's an obscure federal courts case called Franchise Tax Board that's really complicated and hard, and Brennan comes out against jurisdiction and my students always kind of wonder, why is Justice Brennan, who's usually for court access, um, and his papers shed light on why he did that and how close he came to not mm -hmm. doing that. And I think there are a lot of examples like that. So I agree with you. I think I agree that there are some parts of those papers that maybe, maybe should never come out if they're part of the deliberative process and all that. But 
harmless but important information. Anyway, um, one more question about covering the court, and then we'll go to more um, controversial matters. You mentioned Citizens United. Uh, when that case came out, I got calls from the several radio stations and media to talk about it right after it came out. And I said, this opinion's 80 pages, 100, I don't remember, you know, it's somewhere around 100 pages all in, I think. Well, it's, it was about 60,000 words, which is to say about the length of The Great Gatsby. <laughs> right, a book. And I said to m- these media outlets, no, I won't, I, I won't do it. Now, this is a long you. time ago. I don't think I would give that answer today. But I said, <laughs> you want me to read a book between, you know, in, in 30 minutes? And anybody who says they can do that, you know, but you somehow, and I, I've mentioned this to you privately before, it always amazes me how uh, very complicated Supreme Court opinions with concurrences and dissents and partial concurrences and partial dissents. And fi- you get something out within a few hours of those decisions incredibly fast. And in my well, long reading of your, your, your reporting, accurate. How do you do it so fast? So there are two reasons, Eric. Uh, one is that it's not a very hardworking court. There are, in a typical term, maybe half a dozen really important cases. And I will have followed them very closely, you know, written a story on the cert grant, gone to the argument, talked to the principals, talked to uh, the lawyers involved, read the briefs, uh, have a pretty good idea of what the court's going to do. And I will pre-write versions of the story, uh, including most of it, what in journalistic jargon is called B-matter, sort of uncontroversial background that's going to stay true no matter what happens. Right. And then it's an iterative process. So I'll, I'll put up a story very fast in a big case within a few minutes that just announces which side won. And then maybe five minutes later, <clears throat> put in a vote count and, and a couple of quotes uh, and only then sit down and read. Uh, and, and it will take a good hour to read a major decision. Yeah. But we will by then have posted the bare bones news of what happened. And then after I've read it, only then does the story start to achieve liftoff where you give some sense of the reasoning, the context, the consequences. Um, so the earliest stories are quite thin. They're not wrong, uh, but they're kind of mechanical. And the later ones, I hope, uh, you know, bring the value added that the Times has traditionally tried to bring to Supreme Court coverage. And, and well, I think you do that. And you often have um, quotes from experts in whatever area of the law it's in. Do you pick those people in advance, kind of, so they're ready to go when the decision comes out? How how does that work? I actually don't use a lot of outside voices unless it's an area that's, that I'm quite unfamiliar with, like patent law. (laughs) Uh, In much of my coverage, I turn to academics and sometimes uh, people I've gotten to know in various ways including by uh, their presence uh, on blogs and social media, so that if someone demonstrates right. that they're actually following an area closely, sentencing law, election law, whatever, yeah. I, I may well turn to that person. But in argument stories and decision stories, the materials themselves from the court are rich enough that I don't think I need an outside voice to amplify it, and I ought to be able to say things on my own authority. Yeah. Are, have there been one or two or three cases over your, what, 12 years now or 13 years um, that surprised you the most where the opinion came out and you went, oh, my goodness, I never saw that one coming? Yeah, I, I think they generally involved the chief justice. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I had predicted his vote in the first Affordable Care Act case, his recent cases on abortion and DACA, you know. I'm not sure I I saw them coming. Right. And then uh, the Bostock case where the uh, the chief and uh, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote, uh, voted in favor of uh, a statutory uh, worker protection for gay and transgender people. By the time of the argument, that seemed like it was a likely outcome. But some of those cases were surprises. I, um, for what it's worth, I, I was making fairly bold predictions that Justice Roberts was never going to overturn or severely dampen Roe and Casey in an election year, because that's just not the way he rolls. Um, 
You know, I, I, I'm curious you didn't mention the case that I think was maybe the most surprise, surprising case other than maybe Obamacare in 2012 is Justice Kennedy's turnaround in Fisher versus Texas, too, I guess. Where he, yeah, that, that, quite, quite surprising. And uh, I, I have a theory on that. You remember there were two versions of Fisher. Yeah. Uh, and in the first one, uh, Justice Kennedy simply punted, didn't want to decide, not, not unlike his attitude in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Yep. And, and then the case comes back to the court, and it seems to me that the four most conservative justices try to force him to make a decision and put him on the spot. And I think that might have irked him. And he, he joins, uh, he, he joins uh, the liberals. I, th- I think that was a quite shorthanded court, wasn't it? Yes, it was five, it was five, it was five, three. Yeah. Yeah. I think K- Kagan was out because of a conflict and Scalia had died. Is that right? I think that's right. Kagan had an SG level conflict. Oh, so was it five, two? I think it might have been four three, right? Okay. We, we should know this. Someone, someone should look this up. Anyway, it doesn't that? That's not not the key point. Yeah. Uh, the key point is I agree with you that uh, Justice Kennedy, who had never before voted to uphold an affirmative affirmative action program, did there. Uh, although in quite short order, we'll have the Harvard case before the court, and we will find a way to, um, in, in essence, overturn Fisher. Uh, there's a lot I want to respond to about that. First, my first reaction is I want to reach through the screen and hug you for suggesting that maybe Justice Kennedy's decision here wasn't 100% based on his good faith view of the law and maybe some personal things, quasi-personal things were going on because, you know, I have a lot of theories about that and the court. So I want to hug you for that. Uh, s- second, um, I actually don't think the Harvard case is going to come out like you think it is. I, I think there's okay. going to be a lot. This is the Harvard Affirmative Action case um, brought on behalf, well, putatively brought on behalf of, of Asian American, uh, Asian applicants, but brought by the same people who brought Fisher versus Texas. And it's really about white, black, not Asians. But anyway, I, um, when the conservatives see what would happen if the, if the famicus briefs are filed, if a colorblind and genderblind admission system actually went into effect, at Ivy League schools, they're going to find out that white males are going to be hurt dramatically. And there's a lot of data for that. And I, I personally have talked to admissions committee people in the elite schools. They tell me that all the time. So if that evidence is given to the justices, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that case. We, we may see a surprising shift. Mm-hmm. but yeah. We'll see. Well, maybe I'll be surprised again. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I hope so. All right. On to some current events. Are you willing to take some positions on whether you think court reform is necessary? Uh, ask me the question and I'll tell you what. Okay, Let, let's, start, let's, start, let's start with this. No one's talking about this anymore because it's not as important as the other stuff. It needs to be live streamed on television. Right? I mean, live streamed so people can see it, right? The arguments. I mean, isn't that a no brainer these days? I don't think there are principled arguments against cameras in the court, uh, but nor do I think it's going to happen. Even after this live street, live audio that's been going on during COVID, you don't think, wow, they're go- isn't they going to go back to silence? Uh, I think it's a 50-50 shot whether we continue to have live audio once the court's back on the bench. Wow. Uh, they're, they're quite opposed uh, to camera coverage. It, it's hard to take... This is facetious. It's hard to take rights away from the American people. And I think it's going to be hard to stop this, but who knows? Of course, they might do that. Um, more importantly, leaving aside the chances of it happening, which I think we're both going to agree are small, um, is, is there anything that Democrats can do about their perceived slight about the Garland seat? And, and they're not going to add one seat, Adam, because other than me, no one in the world thinks it should be an even number of seats, even though the original number was six. But can you see a world where we end you know, up with 10 Supreme Court justices? So, so let, me, let me start with that point. I, w- I thought uh, an eight-member court was a terrible idea when, when we had that year. You told me that. <laughs> and I've, I've come around to think that, it's, that at least when the even-numbered court is ideologically divided, uh, it actually works fairly well. It, it makes them uh, make more modest decisions. It makes them try to find consensus. Uh, 
the German constitutional court sits in panels of eight and are appointed four and four by the two major political parties. And it's a very, very well-respected court. So I've come around to your view, Eric, substantially that an even number is not a bad idea, so long as you have ideological balance. I mean, if you have a 6-2 court, uh, it's probably even worse than a 5-4 or a 6-3 court. Um, but you were asking a larger question, right? But, but yes, uh, but I want to pause way. you there, though, because this this will be the headline of this tweet unless you reveal something else. That's <laughs> <laughs> that is astonishing. A uh, little bit of background. Few when Justice Scalia passed for other people. I know you know this. When Justice Scalia passed away in 2016, and we had four Republicans and four Democrats. And yes, despite what Jonathan Adler keeps saying, Kennedy was a conservative Republican. He did have some liberal tendencies, of course, with gay rights and all, but. He voted conservative, I think, 75% of the time. So we were evenly divided four and four. And I had this idea, freeze it here. At the end, the end of the story is kind of amusing, I think. Freeze it here. Um, and I wrote that in your paper, in the New York Times, among other places. And Judge Posner invited me to Chicago to do a workshop, which you've done, I think, to present this to a combination of Chicago professors and judges, like Judge Easterbrook and Judge Posner. I, I, you and I talked about this. And you, I think you said it was one of the dumbest ideas you've ever heard, to have an evenly, val- even, evenly balanced Supreme like Court. But you also warned me about Judge Easterbrook. <laughs> you said, Adam, he looked at me like I was the next coming of Satan for an hour and 45 minutes. Um, everyone else in the room was against, but not, but he ha- would have none of it. Um, so I want to make sure I understood this. If we could have a constitutional amendment that said we're going to have an 8, 10, or 12-person Supreme Court evenly divided among Republicans and Democrats with an, a statutory out, or wouldn't be statutory, a Senate rule out for independence, which I put in my proposal, so that we can get independent there if we ever found one who is truly independent. Um, you're now in favor of that proposal? Because I'm... I'm not going to endorse the particular proposal. I'm okay. saying that an ideologically divided, even-numbered court can uh, has has real advantages. I'm wondering if the New Hampshire case did you did you follow that had any bearing on your feelings about this? Uh, do you mean perhaps the Delaware? I do. Case? I'm wrong. I'm sorry. The Delaware case. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So I mean, the problem with partisan balancing, and it sounds like your proposal tries to deal with it, yeah. is that it. It, it only lets the major parties participate, and, uh, and that's deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the court in the end didn't got rid of the case on standing, so we didn't get an answer to this. Right. But my sense is they didn't have a particular problem with limiting the number of judges of one political party in the majority. Right. Say on a five-member court, only three can be Republicans. Right. But they did have a problem saying the other two have to be Democrats or vice versa. Right. That someone with no, no party affiliation should be eligible to right. be a judge. Yeah, I won't go into it, but I did have a very manageable way of dealing with that because that was actually, I presented that proposal at eight law schools. One of the biggest pushback was you're just, you're just you know, cementing a two-party system and it's not fair to independence. Yeah. I definitely had a way around that, but I won't bore everybody with that. Well, I'm glad you've evolved on this issue. It makes it, it gives me, it makes my heart good. Um, is there a way for Democrats to get the Garland? I mean, Democrats, I'm not asking you to comment on this. Democrats think the Garland fiasco was a stolen seat, just pure theft, just pure theft. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a practical way for them to get it back that, that could possibly happen, do you think? Well... Practical? Probably not. Theoretically, the Congress is free to increase the size right. of the Supreme Court. The size of the Supreme Court, you know, Eric, has gone up and down over the years. Yeah. Uh, not for a long time now. And if the Democrats had a substantial majority in the Senate and the majority they now have in the House, I suppose they could do it. In order to make a difference on a 6-3 court, I think if you do the math, you probably have to add four seats that get that starts to be a very big court and this is not a court that unlike many constitutional courts around the world sits in panels so you wonder whether a court that big can function even nine is a little bit hard uh, and you also have to wonder whether you're not uh, starting a kind of tit-for-tat escalation that's going to end in disaster because when the republicans take over 
they're going to expand it even more. And all of a sudden, you know, it's 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 problematic. For the record, I don't want a 13 person court. I want a 12 person court. So it's six, six. <laughs> and then we're back to our good idea of having an evenly balanced court. Um, Jeffrey Tubin, uh, his I think it's his book, The Nine. It might be one of his other books, uh, either begins or ends it with. We have, I think he ends it. We had the Supreme Court we deserve, or something, the American, something like that, that the American people get the Supreme Court they deserve. Um, and right now, the American people are as polarized as any time in my 62 years that I've been following American politics. Um, it, it's really bad. Um, I, I wrote a blog post this morning about Stone Mountain, Georgia, which still has Confederate flags flying in a state park. And I have no doubt there will be serious pushback to that. I don't know on what possible grounds, but there will be. We are really polarized. This court feels to me like it's going to be not a 5-4 polarized court, obviously, but a 6-3 very polarized court. Do you think it's more or less than it used to be the same? How do we compare across eras? No, I think just as... uh the American public and Congress is more polarized than at any time since the Civil War. The Supreme Court mimics that. Now, I don't think that's what the American people deserve, but for a variety of reasons, uh, ideology has become the key determinant in getting on the court. It wasn't so long ago that presidents appointed their cronies or people would give them political benefits or you know someone for the Jewish seat. Right. Uh, now, ideology is really what people look for, and they've gotten much better at making sure they pick people who are not going to drift. Um, so we have a kind of ugly locked-in situation where if all you know is the party of the president who appointed the justice, you know quite a lot about how that justice is going to vote. And again, as you know, Eric, that didn't used to be the case. Right. Think, think of Souter, think of Stevens, think of Brennan, think of Blackman, think of Warren, all liberal uh, Republican appointees. Think of Byron White, a generally conservative Democratic appointee. Uh, those days seem to be gone. Yeah, and that's, um, I've, I've often said we need nine Souters or nine Stevenses or nine Whites or Part of my proposal, by the way, was geared to getting more moderate justices who would be harder to predict, but still more moderate because a Republican president having to nominate a Democrat nominee will almost certainly nominate a conservative Democrat nominee. Um, so anyway, but yeah, I, I, I wonder sometimes if the court couldn't do a little better. It's probably a pipe dream in helping us deal with this polarization by being a little less polarized itself. And maybe Justice Roberts does do some of that. Do you have a thought on that? I think that I think that's uh, part of the chief's calculation as as chief justice, as custodian of the court's legitimacy and prestige. Do you have a favorite case? When I mean favorite, let me define favorite, not the result you wanted. That that was so beautifully written, you know, so so wonderfully reasoned that that it stands out. Well, a couple. I don't know that I'm going to come up with, you know, some of some of the Kagan dissents in in religion cases, yeah. for instance. I think are quite strong. Yeah. I think the chief's writing is almost always quite strong. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, I, I guess I don't really know how to answer that yeah. question. Fair enough. Um, I have a um, a convoluted question I've been trying to ask you. I want I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. So bear with me for just a minute. Uh, we. Justice Kennedy resigned from the Supreme Court in 2018, I guess, and Judge Posner resigned shortly before that, or sometime before that. I don't remember the exact time. Um, I once wrote a column, that, a post, you write columns, I write posts, that uh, the two men were, were very similar in a lot of respects in, in, in their uh, lack of fidelity to an overarching grand theory of law, whether it be originalism or anything else. I mean, Posner was a pragmatist, but I'm not sure that's a theory. But, they, but Kennedy was our most important justice, obviously, from 2006 to 2018. That's not debatable. And I assume Posner was one of the most important non-Supreme Court judges ever. Both of them predated the Federalist Society. They both came of age. The Federalist Society began in 82, 83. They were, they were formed prior to that. And it's my thesis that we don't have a lot of, and they were both Republicans and they were both conservatives back in the day. Neither one was considered that so much when they retired. 
it's my theory that coming of age before the Federalist Society is very different than coming of age after the Federalist Society. And Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito, I'm wondering what you think about that. Um, I think I have problems with every step of the analysis. Okay. <laughs> Um, That's Adam's nice way of saying, you're full of crap. All right, go ahead. <laughs> uh, the Federalist Society is, is very important, and it is a real mark of ideology. Um, but the people who supported Posner supported him as part of the Reagan revolution in moving the courts to the right and as, a, as then an adherent of the law and economics movement. And and also just a a, a, a brainiac and and a, a leading law professor uh, who they thought would do a great job. Uh, Kennedy was a second choice, a third choice, <laughs> uh, and really what they wanted and was that same kind of model I was talking about a second ago: Bork, antitrust. Brainiac, Solicitor General, part of the part of the Reagan Revolution, the, you know, right. the SG who fired Archibald Cox, and only because he failed did they turn to a different model, a kind of old school Sacramento lobbyist with highfalutin theories, but not especially rigorous ones, sort of cosmic theories about the law that I don't associate with the way uh, Judge. Posner thought about things. The pragmatist on the court during the Kennedy era was O'Connor, who was trying to figure out what the workable solution to a societal problem is. Kennedy, although the swing vote, was a maximalist. And when he was with you, he was with you 110%. Whereas I view uh, Judge Posner for most of his career as a true common law judge, as someone trying to figure out what the right resolution of a given dispute was. I agree. First of all, I, I agree with everything you just said. I, I don't know if that's the point I was making, and I'm sure I didn't make it well enough. Well, let me ask it this way. Um, I don't know if I can think of an exceptionally bright. I guess there are people who would take issue with how smart Justice Kennedy was. Not many people would take issue with how smart Judge Posner was. But, but that's sideways to my point, which is an exceptionally bright conservative judge today or someone who wants to be a judge today. Um, even someone like Michael McConnell, who also kind of a little bit predated the Federalist Society, and I, I think has a view of judging that is very humble and very, you know, but, but anyone eligible to be on the Court of Appeals today in a Republican administration is going to have to toe an ideological line, not a political line. And I think those are different things. If you're not, if you, can you imagine any Republican judge saying I'm against originalism getting on the court? I mean, that wouldn't happen, right? Right. I, what I'm trying to say is, I, I agree with you that to get on to get on the court, one, it's very important to simply be a member of the Federalist Society yeah. and active in it. If, if you want to be a Republican appointee, yeah. and two, you have to sort of kiss the book on things like hostility to the administrative state and abortion rights, and even uh, judges who say, like Jeff Sutton. Uh, voted uh, to uphold the Affordable Care Act, uh, that seems to have been disqualifying for a very fine judge. Even Justice Kavanaugh, who may be too clever by half, decided that the case was not ripe for decision, got a lot of criticism as insufficiently attentive to the importance of striking down the Affordable Care Act. So there does seem to be a uh, a felt desire for a kind of ideological purity uh, from the people who appoint Republican uh, judges that is probably a product from the Federal Society writ large. And I, I think you're looking at it from the perspective of the people who will nominate and confirm the judges. I was actually looking at it from the perspective of the judges themselves and I, 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 I still will, I think, go to the mat on the idea that the Federal Society changed a lot about how judges on the right act, speak, and view the Constitution. But we don't have to, we don't have to beat a dead horse. I just yeah. think it's important. I, I, I just always thought it was interesting that at circa 2017, 
although Roberts was the chief, Justice Kennedy was obviously the vote that mattered the most. And Judge Posner was still riding high as a you know, Court of Appeals judge. And neither one of them had any use for originalism, which I, which I think, you know, wouldn't work today. It just, it just, it just that, that, that kind of attitude would not work. I had a call from a Third Circuit Court of Appeals judge, a phone call, who said he heard a podcast I did about originalism. And he told me that um, he liked what I said. And then he went on a 20-minute rant. I never met this person in my life. He went on a 20-minute rant about his colleagues and how all they want to learn about is what happened in 1789 or occasionally 1868. And it was driving him crazy. And he didn't understand why they were looking for answers. And what he said was all the wrong places. Um, and he is definitely seeing a ma- – he told me he's seeing a major change. But do you think, Eric, that there are that many committed originalists on the Supreme Court? Certainly Thomas, certainly Gorsuch, probably Barrett. Uh, but not the chief, not Alito. Well, I was going to ask you that question, Adam, but in a, different, in a different way that I wasn't sure you were going to answer. When you say committed originalists, you know, you don't have to react to this. My view is there are no committed originalists on the Supreme Court. I've written more blog posts, articles, and a book on how Scalia and Thomas, their overall jurisprudence is as living constitutionalist as any other judge. Scalia struck down 135 or 140 laws, something like that. There's a very small percentage of those where he actually did an originalist analysis. Um, do you want to react to that comment I just made? <laughs> uh, I think both that uh, people use originalism opportunistically and that even the use of originalism is fairly malleable. It can lead you to results in one direction or the other, particularly given what level of generality you choose to interpret the Constitution. I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. Maybe I should have said rather than committed, avowed. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> I agree. Um, you, I want to go back to something you said, uh, which was that Justice uh, Kavanaugh was clever by half or something like that. Um, I was teaching, uh, I'm teaching Roe and Casey in Cunlaw now, and Students are asking me, you know, what's going to happen and all that. I thought an under, I think you, I, I don't remember if you reported it, so I apologize. But an underreported a- aspect of Kavanaugh's confirmation here was when he said he agreed with Justice White's concurrence in Griswold. So just to bring people up to speed on this, Griswold is the case where the Supreme Court struck down Connecticut's anti-contraception law. It was in 1965, I think. Um, and it, 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 it formalized the right to privacy, which eventually gave birth in, in Roe. Didn't mean that as a pun. Um, that, that came to rise in, in, in Roe. But Justice White's concurring opinion in Griswold does not rely on the right to privacy, as you know. It relies on a kind of rational basis. The means ends don't fit here. Kavanaugh doing that, um, with, uh, I, I want to ask you, but do you think, it was, do you think that was – wildly intentional? I mean, do you think he thought about it beforehand and decided his strategy about abortion was going to be, I'm not going to commit to anything. I'm not going to, I'm not going to disown Griswold because that gets me in trouble, but I, I'm going to rely on White. And then, of course, White dissented in Roe. So when Kavanaugh votes to overturn Roe, he can say, I said all along that I agreed with White. And you know, what do you think of that? Uh, I don't think on an issue as important as Griswold and Roe, any comment made in a confirmation hearing is not carefully thought through. Okay. Um, is there something you'd rather law professors do better, con law professors, to make, to make, <laughs> to make your life easier? Uh, to make my life easier? Uh, no, and that shouldn't be their goal, to make my life easier. Uh, I find a lot of law review writing to be too long, too formal, too theoretical, and for my purposes, not sufficiently engaged with the pending Supreme Court docket. I'm surprised by how many law professors sort of at the end of the term start to learn about what the Supreme Court did rather than uh, follow the arguments as, as they unfold through the term. I, 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 but I mean, part of part of the problem is that the law review format has a million problems with it. But one of it is that it's much too slow. Right. I mean, you want to you want to be reacting to what's going on in the world now, not a year or eighteen months from now. I was surprised last week. I had Keith Whittington on, 
Um, and, and I love Keith. I, I don't agree with him about much, but we— Me too. He's a great guy and very thoughtful. And he was—I've written a piece called Law Review Follies that goes through a lot of the problems, one of which is you submit an article in February. It may come out the next March if you're right. lucky. Keith told me that peer-reviewed journals, because he's a political scientist, often also take that long or longer, which actually shocked me. But then again, he had no answer when I said, yes, but at least you don't have second-year law students deciding on the merits of those pieces as opposed to experts. Yes. You, <laughs> uh, I, I actually would think that peer review takes time. And if you had nimble editors, students, or others, you ought to be able to post something. I mean, you know, I write something in the morning and it's on the web. Right. Like immediately. Uh, that's not, I mean, there's also a superstructure to law review articles that is driven by a pedagogical need because students are learning how to blue book stuff. And also by an attempt to demonstrate to people who will vote on your tenure that you have this ability not only to make a point, which you could probably make in five pages, but also to survey the landscape and put in all the footnotes. And so it has various goals, but most of those goals are unrelated to the conveying of fresh information promptly <laughs> to interested readers. I love the way you put that. I think all of the goals are unrelated to fresh information. Even when the online law reviews first began, I would say around 2010-ish, you know, give or take, maybe a little bit earlier, um, I I used to have good luck submitting to the elite law reviews. Uh, Harvard published a piece of mine in five weeks, um, the Harvard Law Review Forum mm -hmm. or whatever it was called. Um, and that was a time-sensitive piece because it was, well, it doesn't matter. They published it quickly. Um, even that's gone, Adam. If, if, if I write a, a – I didn't know that. Yeah, if I write a six or 7,000 or, or even a three or 4,000 word uh, piece, and I've done a bunch of these in the last three years, it can take eight months now for an online law review to get your piece up, which is one of the reasons, and I've had running battles, that's too strong a word, running discussions on Twitter with a lot of thoughtful law professors about blog posts. I can set, so, so I blog for Dwarf on Law, Mike, is, you know, right, Mike runs it, but we kind of work on it together. But I can tell Mike I want to publish a piece on Monday, write it on Sunday, and it's up. I mean, that, that can happen. Yeah. I have no, other than op-eds and essays, I have, in newspapers, I have no real other way of doing that. Even, even Slate and Daily Beast and all of that could be a two or three day, four day difference. Um, but but the, the, the year weight of the law reviews is causing havoc, I think, for a lot of tenure committees. Because when I came up in when, when I came up, when I, I started in 91, got tenure in 96, back then, we just accepted that law review articles will be out of time. I mean, they won't be fresh because of, but now people, like, as you know, want it yesterday. And it's, it's, a, it's a hard balance between, timeliness and thoughtfulness, I guess. Yeah, but the internet ought to take care of some of these publication issues. You would think. Um, I mean, I, I, Harvard Harvard, and Chicago both have blog, or Harvard had a blog. I can't tell. I, I published it a few times, and that was a day. I would send them in the morning. It would come up the next day. That's not going to be a life-changing article, but it could be a pretty good piece about a current event. I, I hope more of the elite law reviews do that, because I think that's one place – Maybe the New York right. Times might not want them to do it, but I think that would be a good place for it, I think. Um, is there anything you would change about how journalists in general report on the court? And this would be one of my last questions. Well, I, you know, occasional coverage of the court has serious shortcomings because people don't have the background to know what they're talking about. So it's not unusual for people to report that the Supreme Court had ruled on something when all they did was deny review, deny cert. Right. Uh, and that, that kind of elementary mistake or reading, just reading too much uh, into a procedural move, um, could be cured if more people had a little bit more background in covering the court. But on the other hand, you could also make the case that the Supreme Court is way overcovered. There may be 25 of us with hard passes to cover the court more or less full time. Right. That's a weird societal misallocation of resources when most of the law that we live under is made by state Supreme Courts and uh, federal circuit courts. 
who can issue major decisions that are entirely unreported. Meanwhile, you know, some minor Armed Career Criminal Act case comes out and 25 people are, you know, writing modest stories about them, but nonetheless writing essentially the same story all all at the same time. And and speaking of the 25 of you, however many they are, one of the things I've noticed that I find really nice, especially in this age of polarization, is from what I can tell, um, uh, you and and, and Robert Barnes, who is the Supreme Court reporter um, uh, for the Washington Post, and uh, Jesse Braven, uh, Dahlia, all, all the national Supreme Court reporters, you all cite each other. I mean, you all point to when, when Barnes writes a good piece, you have no problem. He does it all the time, but it's you know, one that you particularly think is important. You tweet it out and you support it and all that. I th- it's very much a team, isn't it? It's a very collegial group yeah. uh, and, and a lot of fun to work with. And people tend to do the job for a long time. Uh, and we also don't have a lot of scoops to be chasing after. So there's no particular reason <laughs> to be hyper competitive. But one thing I miss, Eric, during the pandemic is that the press room at the court is a really fun place to hang out. And we can also talk to each other about matters of such trivia <laughs> that not only are they not worthy of a New York Times story, they're not worthy of a, of a, of a Twitter, <laughs> of a tweet. But, you know, we're fascinated by, by all the workings and, and the eye rolling on the bench and the odd turns of phrase. Uh, so it's, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely, welcoming bunch of people. And yes, we do. Uh, when someone writes something smart, I have no hesitation. I'm, I'm eager for people to see it. Yeah, and, and I think they all do. It. I, I think all of you do it from what I, what I can tell. Yeah. Those of you on Twitter. All right. Um, I think this is. Thank you so much for this. I, I think this is. One of my last questions, if not my last question. Um, I, so I'm going back to something you said, which is that in some ways the court is one of our most transparent public bodies because mm-hmm. they are required to give public reasons for their decisions. Not sure they're required to, but they do give public reasons for their decisions. And, 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 they, and they do that in all major cases, obviously. Um, in argued cases, yeah. if there's a there's a second set of cases, and maybe this is where you're heading, uh, that people call the shadow docket, where their rulings on emergency applications, which can be very consequential, are often accompanied by no reasoning at all. And I think that's deeply problematic. Sure. And, and I think Will Bode called it that. Maybe I don't know if he called it that first. Yes. But, um, but Steve Vladek has done that. Better. He's, he's generally credited. He's generally credited with the term. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and Steve Vladek has done good reporting on that, too, I think. Um, yes. But but my I guess what I want to ask you is so so as you know much of my career has been devoted to demystifying the court in many different ways but one of them is that I don't think the the justice the, I'm trying to ask this carefully I think these are hard cases often and hard decisions and and some that really or get to the justices heart and soul abortion affirmative action whatever it is, campaign finance, when they care a lot, it's important to them. And like all of us who make hard parenting decisions or hard professional decisions or hard grading decisions in my case, you know, I don't always know my true motivation. And we know that with governors, presidents, senators, we really don't believe much of what they say. I mean, this is is my main point here. We call governors, presidents, senators, mayors, liars all the time. When Justice, this is one example, I'm I'm not asking about a specific example, but the general idea. So Justice O'Connor in Adirond, an affirmative action case, describes a previous affirmative action case, Metro Broadcasting, as an outlier and as a a, a veer in in doctrine. And she's just demonstrably wrong about that. It's just false. It's not true. We can prove it. Metro Broadcasting was not different than other cases. It was the culmination of a line of cases. When I bring that up to people, they say, well, she made a mistake, you know, she, she, or, or she didn't say exactly what it was. I say, no, she knew what she was doing, and it was false. And then people get mad at me. I'm not allowed to call the justices liars. I'm not allowed to say they were negligent in how they treated this prior case, or the clerks were, whatever. And then Susanna Sherry, compound question, friend of mine from way back, wrote this fantastic piece a few years ago about the justices as celebrities. I think you covered that. Um, are they too much like celebrities? And are we, not you, but law professors, too easy on them? 
Um, so on the first point, I'm sure there are instances where the justices were sloppy or worse. But as a general matter, I think they are entitled to be taken at their word, that what they say is what they mean. And I think most of us uh, should be entitled to do that, to that courtesy. If there's something demonstrably wrong, uh, I wouldn't, first of all, ascribe it to a a calculated falsehood. I'd ascribe it to negligence. Mm -hmm. But we should explore these things. I I don't dispute any of that. Um, And then as to whether whether the justices enjoy their status in the world too much uh, because they're treated like royalty at law schools and at bar associations and, and so on, and and worse yet, at uh, federal society and American Constitution yeah. society events. Uh, I think you could make the argument that um, uh, they should take some more cases and make some fewer appearances. Yeah. They have four law clerks each now, I think. They used to get three. Is that right? Like, And and they decide half as many cases they decided in the 50s and 60s, I think. Right. So last term, I may have the number wrong. It was the smallest number since the Civil War. I think it was 56 uh, yeah. signed decisions yeah. in argued cases. We're not on track to do much better this year. Yeah. If you think, you know, you divide that by nine. <laughs> And then take into account that they each have four law clerks. And then, uh, so the merits docket is is very slow. They've been doing a lot of work on the shadow docket. It it takes a lot of work uh, to do the cert docket. Uh, they are dealing with last minute stay requests and death penalty cases. They have stuff to do. Um, but I think. Uh, their their taste for public appearances is in some tension with uh, the size of the docket. They they they, as I say, maybe maybe they should take a few more cases. Justice David Namius of the Georgia Supreme Court, a Scalia clerk, um, has said publicly on many occasions. I, I don't know how many opinions he writes a year, but it's I think close to a hundred. I mean, it's it's way up there. And he talks about how they write 12 or 11 or 10 merits opinions a year. Yes, or, or, yeah, each, they're not even. Yeah. yeah, he's very articulate about that. Now, of course, there are people who would be worried about the court taking on more cases. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at one of them. At- there was that great, when, um, when the chief justice was a White House lawyer, he wrote a bunch of uh, funny memos. He's a, he's a witty writer. <laughs> and he, he wrote that uh, only... Apropos the long summer break, the um, justices take that only school children and Supreme Court justices get the summer off. But then he said, but at least the Constitution is safe for the summer. (laughs) I can think of no better way to leave than on that note. Thank you, Adam. This has been really fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thank you very much.